Our second reading for this morning comes from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 43, beginning with the first verse. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Ethiopia and Sheba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my sight and honored and I love you, I give people in return for you. Nations in exchange for your life, do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from far away, and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Here ends our second reading. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, last Sunday we had the great privilege and pleasure of seeing... Carl and Faith Gallup-Jones get baptized. And while I was there baptizing Carl and Faith, I couldn't help but think of all the other baptisms that I've seen or been involved with. For me personally, I actually remember my baptism. I was baptized at the same time as my younger sister, so I was about three and a half, approaching four And for a a three-and-a-half to four-year-old standing in front of a large crowd of strange people while a bearded guy puts water on your forehead is a memorable experience. (laughs) And I was baptized in the Wellesley Hills Congregational Church, so my baptismal ceremony was much like the one we did last Sunday, except our our baptismal font had a natural wood finish rather than this painted wood finish we have for ours over here. But the interesting thing is, is that, you know, not, not all baptisms are the same. I remember, uh, I remember when I was working in Ames, Iowa, we would do combined services with the first Christian church, Disciples of Christ, during the month of July. And as part of that, not only would we exchange pulpits, we'd also exchange sanctuaries. And I remember the first time walking into that sanctuary, and I went up on the chancel, you know, the dais up front. And as I was standing up there, I looked, and... <laughs> And there was a bathtub right on the top of the chancel, uh, like a pool, you know, like right there. And I was so flummoxed by this because I'd never seen it before that I actually walked down into it to see what it was. And of course, I turned to the minister and I'm like, what, what's this here? And she said, well, John, that's our baptismal font, obviously. Because, <laughs> of course, the disciples of Christ do believers baptism. And so they do full dunking of people in their baptismal font. So they need a pool for that. And the convenient place to put the pool is up behind the pulpit. Uh, Some of you might have been familiar with that. That's the first time I'd seen it. (laughs) And there are other fonts, too, that that come in different shapes and sizes. If you go over to Christ the King Lutheran, uh, my favorite baptismal font that I've seen here in the city of Houston is at Christ the King Lutheran down by Rice. 
And you walk into that space and there's this beautiful stone font that is probably, you know, three feet across with water that flows over it in sort of a fountain-like format. And it's directly opposite their, uh, their altar. So you can see the table, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, and the sacrament of baptism greet you as you come in. Another one of my favorites, also in a Lutheran church, is in Midtown Manhattan, uh, St. Peter's Lutheran, where a friend of mine works. And it's a, it's a contemporary space, uh, contemporary architecture. You walk in, and you see the baptismal font that's a pool that has water sort of cascading into the pool. The only thing that's odd about it, I don't really know how you get down into the pool to do the baptism, but, uh, but anyway, there, there's all these different shapes and sizes. Some, some baptisms are done by sprinkling. Some are full immersion. I always wonder what happens when you take a, full, take a baby and fully immerse the baby. I've, I've never tried that, but it's probably not a good move. <laughs> now, there are all the baptisms you think of in some of the movies. One of my favorite movies is The Godfather, and there's that iconic baptismal scene at the end of The Godfather. There, you've got this Roman Catholic baptism, so you've got this beautiful marble baptismal font, and the priest dressed in all of his robes, and there's Michael Corleone as godfather for this baby, and you know, apparently in, in that tradition, they use like a little... Uh, a little saucer to put water on the baby's forehead. And so they're putting water on. Of course, they baptize in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then there's a threefold renunciation of Satan that's part of the traditional liturgy. And so the priests ask Michael Corleone, do you renounce Satan and all his works? And Michael Corleone, in a very calm voice, says, I, I renounce them. Meanwhile, the, like, the scene cuts to these four people that he's now murdering, uh, giving them order for the murder. Uh, I'm assured that, that, that not all Roman Catholic baptisms are like that. I've actually been involved in several, so I know that's not the case. <laughs> and I think of other movie scenes with baptisms. I think of, uh, like, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? You know, there's that great scene where they go down to the river. Apparently, you can get baptized in a, in a river, too. And, you know, as they're going down there, the whole choir is singing, you know, Oh, I went down to the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear. So there's this, that, and then they get, and then, of course, there's also baptisms that don't involve any water at all, or white robes or rivers or fonts. If you're a Quaker or you're a Pentecostalist, then you get baptized by the Holy Spirit. No, no water necessary, no priest necessary. Holy Spirit just descends upon you and you are baptized. Of course, today, I bring this all up because today is the baptism of Jesus Sunday. It's the Sunday during the liturgical calendar where we remember and lift up the baptism of of Jesus in the River Jordan by John the Baptist. And so I was thinking about all these different baptismal uh, variations that we have. And the question that popped into my head was, well, okay, we see all this different variation, but uh, what does baptism mean? I mean, like in, in, in the congregational church, UCC. What's baptism mean? Let's say someone uh, ran into you on the street and they're like, oh, you go to church? Okay, what church do you go to? And you say, oh, I've been going to First Congregational Church, UCC. Okay, well, what, what does baptism mean in that church? What would you say? Could you give a good answer? Now, some baptismal theologies are straightforward uh, and relatively easy to wrap your head around. And if someone asks you that, you could probably give an answer to it. For instance, for the traditional Roman Catholic view, the historical pre-Vatican II Roman Catholic view, was that uh, you know, we are all descendants of Adam. 
We're all descended from Adam. And of course, Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And that's sort of the original sin. And so we all bear the stain of the sin of Adam. So when you're born, you bear Adam's sin. Even if you live a perfect life, you still have the sin of Adam that you carry with you. And so you get baptized in order to wipe away the stain of the sin of Adam. That's the sort of traditional Roman Catholic view. And because of that, you baptize infants. Because you want to get that stain of the sin of Adam off of a child as soon as you can in case something happens to that child. In pre-Vatican II Roman Catholic hospitals, they even had syringes with holy water. So in case there was a problem during delivery of a baby, they could baptize the baby uh, even in utero to make sure that baby wouldn't go to hell and go to, go to limbo simply because of the stain of the sin of Adam. So <clears throat> there you have the Roman, traditional Roman Catholic view on baptism. Post-Vatican II things have gotten, thankfully, they, they've been varied and opened up more. But that's the traditional Roman Catholic view of baptism. Okay. Straightforward. Then you've got the classic Baptist view. Uh, I know many of you grew up in a Baptist tradition or at least familiar with Baptist traditions. The Baptist view, again, what is baptism? Baptism is a visible sign of an interior change that's gone on in your soul. So you've committed yourself to Christ. You've made a decision for Christ. You come down that aisle when just as I am is playing and playing and playing. You come down that aisle and you get the chance to get baptized. And that baptism is, a, is, is an outward sign of what's gone on in your heart. That's why they do believer's baptism. You've got to be an adult in order to get baptized or perhaps a teenager or perhaps an eight-year-old, which, again, the younger it goes, the more questions I start to bring up. But nevertheless, you get the point. And also, because baptism in a Baptist context is that outward sign of something that's gone on in, in, t- in an interior ways, you're allowed to get rebaptized. So let's say you get baptized and then you have a backsliding, falling away from the church, and then you come back. You might choose to get rebaptized as, again, that external sign of what's gone on in your soul. But what about, what about here? What do we believe? I, I, I could put some of you on the spot, but I, <laughs> I don't think I will. Well, again, we come out of the Reformed tradition. Capital R, Reformed tradition. And that refers to the tradition that comes out of the writings of John Calvin uh, and others like him during the Reformation. And Calvin had, a, had very clear views on baptism, as he had clear views on many things. He wrote them down extensively. What Calvin affirmed about baptism is this. Baptism is the ingrafting of a person into the body of Christ. When you get baptized, it is a sign of your ingrafting into the body of Christ, a symbol that you are a part of the church universal. It's also, according to Calvin, a seal of your election in Jesus Christ. A seal of the covenant of grace. A seal of the offer of forgiveness that is given to you based on Jesus' death on the cross. So Calvinists, of course, rejected this Roman Catholic notion that you had to constantly confess your sins and then be absolved of them. Confess your sins and be absolved of them. Confess your sins and be absolved of them. Calvin's like, that's ridiculous. That's nonsense. The forgiveness of sins happened once. It happened once for all. It happened on the cross on Golgotha 2,000 years ago. And you have to be reminded of that. You have to be given an assurance of pardon. But that work has been done. And so what baptism is, is a seal 
of that forgiveness work that's been done. It's this, it's this seal of that you are a part of this covenant of grace that is offered to you. All right? That's what Calvin talked about. I and mean, then, then when Calvin talked about the notion of infant baptism, he was very firm on infant baptism. And the reason why he was firm on infant baptism is a couple of reasons. One, he said that baptism for Christians is the Christian equivalent of Jewish circumcision. So just as a Jewish infant would be circumcised in order to symbolize that membership as, as a full part of the people of Israel, Christian infants are baptized to symbolize that they are a full part of the body of Christ in that same way. And to those who would say, well, what about the confession of faith? Surely faith plays a role in baptism and, well, infants can't display faith. And Calvin's response would be, well, faith is something that actually is a gift of God. Faith is not something that you choose. It's a gift of God. It is a gracious gift of God that comes to you in your life. If you are one of the elect, you get this saving faith that comes to you. And we are proclaiming a promise that this child will have that saving faith, that that the child has the seed of the saving faith then, and that saving faith will continue to blossom throughout that person's life. To, to, To put an age on it is to assume that at a certain point you get to choose your own salvation. And Calvin would have laughed at that notion. This is a choice that God makes, not you. No better way to make that clear than to baptize infants and to proclaim that that seed of the saving faith is there in that infant. And plus, said Calvin, when you baptize infants, it calls the parents to a deeper and holier fidelity. They're like, we have this responsibility now as Christian parents. We have to raise this child as a Christian. This is a big deal. And for everyone who watches it, everyone who participates in the baptism, they feel the same way. All this is laid out in Calvin's Institutes. If you'd like to read it through, I can re- give you the page references and you can plow through the 40-some-odd pages of Calvin that I was reading through the other day. What's interesting is that even though our beliefs today might be different than John Calvin's, the same basic elements are the basic elements that we affirm today, and that's why we baptize the way we do. We can still say that when we baptize a child or an adult, that baptism is a sign of that person's inclusion in the body of Christ and the church universal. You can proclaim that person is a part of the Christian church as soon as that person is baptized. And we proclaim loudly that the promises of forgiveness and salvation that are offered by God through our faith are offered to a child just as much as they're offered to an adult. Salvation is a free gift of God, and we proclaim that in baptism. This child, this adult, is loved and forgiven and free. It is a loud proclamation of that, and it is a reminder for all of us of our own baptism to hear that word. So when I think of any text, any text in the Bible that would be as appropriate as any other To name what our baptismal theology is, it is this text that I read a moment before in Isaiah 43. In Isaiah 43, here you have the prophet Isaiah speaking a word of God to the Israelites in exile. They are in exile in their life. They are out there. They're in Babylon. They are in that other place, wandering around. And in spite of all of that, God speaks through Isaiah and says, you are a child of God. You are created of God. I call you by name. You are mine and you are loved. 
Regardless of the exiles that we might feel, the message that comes from God is, you are mine, I call you by name, and you are loved. And then Isaiah goes on to say this again. He this, is, this, is, this is not a promise that all will be well in life. Isaiah talks very explicitly. Again, he's talking to a bunch of exiles. And he talks very explicitly that you will go through the waters. That you will go through the fires. And yet, nevertheless, God will be with you. Now, this is why I like, um, yeah, this is why I like the theology of one of the reasons why I like the theology of the guy I mentioned last week, Paul Tillich. Tillich has this wonderful conception of God as God is the ground of our being. It's often misinterpreted, but that's another story. God is the ground of our being. It's a non-interventionist God. In other words, God is not there with marionette strings trying to say, oh, well, this person gets cancer and this person lives. This person dies in a car accident and this person doesn't. By talking about God as the ground of our being, we can hopefully get outside that notion of what God is. But Tillich would say that God is there. So when we have threats to our being, to our very existence, when that who we are is being threatened by one thing or another, God is that ground underneath that is sustaining us, that shows up in various ways. That even though we might be going through difficult times, God is still there. The everlasting arms that are holding us up, that is God, according to Tillich. So yesterday, when I was, went to go see David Nickel up in, uh, up in his hospice facility, and one thing he said was how great it was for him and how much of a comfort it was for him to have visits from many of you, and in particular to receive your cards. Here he is, who's someone who's facing the end of his life, and he has the assurance of God's presence and love shown through the love of all of you. That's a manifestation of God there as the ground of our being. David's not going through an easy time, but he knows that God is with him through the midst of it, in part through the expressions of your love to him. You know, in this past week, again, uh, someone who's been visiting church for the last year, John Mendelson, passed away. His wife, Anne, is a member of the church and going to sit with the family, and the family just talking about how much, what, what an outpouring of love they had, that it supported them through this difficult time. It's not a promise that all will be well, but there's a promise that underneath it all, God is there as a ground of your being. Even if you are someone who might be alone in your suffering, still there are those moments of grace that show up in odd ways. I'm sure if you were to think about some of those times you've been through, you could feel that grace. And that is the message that we get here in baptism. In spite of all of it, in spite of all the things we might go in spite of those waters, in spite of the fires, the message we get in baptism, the proclamation that we make loudly and boldly is that you are beloved. You are loved of God. That is the message that you get. And the reality is we have to be reminded constantly of our baptisms. That's what Calvin tells us. That is one of the messages that come through. You have to be reminded of that fact because it's so easy to forget that you are loved. Because life throws at us all sorts of issues and it's easy to forget that. And so today, on the baptism of Jesus Sunday, that's the message that I want you to take back, to take back with you. What is the point of baptism? It is to hear that message that you are loved of God. That God calls you by name. That God knows you and God is still there for you in spite of what you might be going through. That is the message of the waters of baptism. So when you think of Jesus coming up through the River Jordan, coming up, and as he comes up out of the River Jordan, those are the first words he hears. For you are my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. 
This week, as you consider your baptism, may you hear those same words. You are beloved. Because that's at the essence of what the sacrament is all about.